first want to make a little plug for Jean-Baptiste, who is going to be here next week. Um, I don't know how many of you followed a few years ago the great tragedy in Rwanda. It was probably uh, far and away the time of our greatest failure as a nation during the Clinton years, that we and the whole world stood by as hundreds and hundreds of thousands Upwards of a million people were killed. And one of the things that riveted my attention during that time was the fact that um, many of the people who were killed and who did the killing were Christians, were confessing Christians. And so in the land of Rwanda right now, there is a great soul work going on of trying to deal with murder and of the most brutal sort um, between Christians and uh, the Lord has been doing a wonderful work in causing forgiveness to, to go out across that land. And both forgiveness and justice, if you follow the work of the tribunal, the international tribunal, you'll know that uh, both justice and forgiveness, are, they're not against each other. Uh, they work in perfect harmony. Anyhow, John Baptiste is, is one of the leaders in the Christian community in that nation, and so if you don't normally come to Sunday school, I encourage you to come next Sunday and to think and learn from this man about the nature of Christian uh, witness in a time of great suffering. You might have a great struggle yourself with forgiving something in your past, but I want you to consider this man who lost many people in his family. If my son is correct, his mother and his father and many others in this time of killing. Um, come and think, meditate on what it is, what harm has been done to you, as I was meditating prior to coming up here. Um, and then ask yourself, is bitterness what honors God? A lack of forgiveness. So I really encourage you to come next Sunday, both to the time in Sunday school, and I understand he'll be bringing us a greeting during church and then afterwards at the Dodd Rolls. This is a wonderful opportunity. and uh, So don't miss it. And invite friends. There are a lot of people that might be very interested in Africa and have followed this politically. And it's a nice introduction, in fact, perfect one, to the forgiveness that comes to us through Christ to have this, uh, this man here and to learn of the forgiveness that's going on in Rwanda. David, do you want to say anything more? Where are you? I mean, all right. doesn't say it perfectly, but... Okay. But that'll be too late for Sunday school. This man is one of the uh, leaders in Africa today. You will find a warmth in this man and uh, a, a genuine honesty and a love for the Lord uh, that is remarkable. Uh, his fiance was murdered along with all of her family. Uh, he had many relatives killed. Uh, at the time, uh, shortly before he had come to Christ, he's a former Muslim. Uh, he was a lawyer with the National Bank. Uh, and God changed his heart and uh, his burden has been young people 
And you might say, well, that's kind of an isolated group. But in Rwanda, 75% of the population is 18 or younger. So that gives you a little bit of pause right there. A remarkable man. He has a young man with him, Ellie, who is his intern, who he's training to uh, do similar work. So you'll meet them next week. I know them. Uh, my brother, <coughs> Mark, is uh, National Director for Youth for Christ in Spain. And he's been there for 20 years. And he met him and he called me up one day and he says, you need to talk to this man, uh, Jean-Baptiste. He said, every once in a while, every 15, 20 years, you come across somebody and meet somebody that you, whatever they're doing, you want to be a part of. And he says, this is that kind of man. And you have to meet him. And I called him up and we got together and we helped him. Uh, raised some money for a plot of land there for uh, a training center. Uh, and we'll be hearing more about all of that uh, next week. But uh, a remarkable story, remarkable man. And he would love to, during the two weeks that he's here, if you would, would like to just have lunch with him, uh, a remarkable time, uh, do it. We'll, we'll make arrangements to get him wherever you are. A while ago, I read a book. Uh, we regret to inform you that tomorrow you'll be killed with your family. I think it was a New York Times uh, correspondent who wrote it. And I encourage you to get it. It's at Barnes & Noble and Borders. And uh, it'll be a great help to understanding what this man is speaking about. It's not that long. It's a very, very good book. So if you can't remember that title, you won't remember any title. We regret. That's how it starts. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, 41 to 47. One other thing. David didn't say the one thing I wanted him to say at the end, which is that he went over with a number of people uh, that he and his brother organized and built a building in, what, two weeks or three Nine and a half days, all right. How big? Uh, 7,500 square feet. And uh, steel frame building. And they're going to be going back over this coming summer. Uh, we're not sure yet how the schedule will work, but I encourage you, if you want to be a part of one of these work teams, talk to David about that, because what a wonderful privilege that would be. Okay, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Now, for those of you that haven't been here the last couple of weeks, this time of turning to uh, house groups, we've tried to set a biblical basis for this so that you don't think it's just the latest trend and, and uh, um, fashion. But if you'll go back through church history, you'll find again and again and again, at times where the Lord works in the church, you will see people gathering together, confessing their sins to each other, and that's not necessarily in the whole group, although... Um, in Calvin's Geneva and the company of pastors, they would actually share with the whole group, but that would have been a men-only group. But nevertheless, we confess our sins together, we encourage one another, we pray for one another, we worship, and we do this in a smaller group than our assembled once-a-week worship. And right away at the beginning of the founding of the church in Acts 2, you see the church doing this from house to house. That's how it puts it. And this is a theme in Scripture. 
And if you look at the qualifications for leaders that there are in Scripture, you'll see again and again that it says that they must be given to hospitality. Now, it's very curious today that when in our public life as, as America, we are so intimate. It's false intimacy, but we are so intimate. Television has broken down all the boundaries of intimacy. It's very ironic, though, at the precise time when postmodernism is so, like, you know, intimate, you know, and informal and sort of low-key, that we have completely given up having people into our homes. And that's the best clue that our intimacy is fake. Because intimacy, if it's sincere, always is around a table and in a home. When I was out in Boulder working at First Pres there for a while, it was very interesting to me that almost never, and you, if you know anything about Boulder, Boulder is certainly not a bastion of conservatism. Well, in Boulder, um, people never had us into their homes. Never. It was always a restaurant. Now, I'm not against restaurants. Um, nevertheless, Scripture has this theme about the home. It has something about the home. And if you go back in the time of the early church, you'll see that the early church was known what? It was known for the ministry of the homes. Now, you might say, well, where does that come from? And I say, well, they were known for going out back on the hillsides behind their houses, picking up the little kids that were exposed, that were left there by their parents to die or to be put into some sort of slavery. They'd go out and get the kids and bring them into their homes. And Christians were known to do this. Um, they, also, they also had evident love for their wives and faithfulness to their marriage. They were known for this. This was a public knowledge. See how they love one another was, in fact, the witness of the Roman Empire about the Christians. Um, and so their family relationships and, and, and bringing into their homes the orphans and these children that would have looked forward to slavery. And then you go to the qualifications for elders and for deacons. And what you see is, again, this emphasis on the home. They have to be given to hospitality in order to be a pastor, an elder, a deacon. They had to have their homes in order. And in order doesn't mean a loveless environment of uh, intense discipline. In order means a beautiful harmony of both discipline and love. That's order. And it's happy. And it's that kind of place that out of its abundance has other people in. It's just natural. And it even goes so far in the New Testament as to say to the elders and the leaders that the only women who should be supported when they're widows... All right, now think about this. They used money to support the older women who became widows because they didn't have social security, right? The Bible actually says that the only ones who should be supported are those who have what? Well, who have been devoted to their home, who have honored their husbands, who have raised children in godliness. And it goes through this list. And again, it's a very domestic list. And it says those women who have proven themselves by such godliness are those who are to be supported by the church. Well, the clear implication is if a woman has given herself to decadence while claiming the name of Jesus Christ, 
has been frivolous, has gone from house to house gossiping, has been a drunkard. And these, again, are things spoken of in the New Testament about men and women that disqualifies them. Well, that woman was not to be supported by the church. Very interesting. And then finally, we see this theme on the home so clearly when it speaks to the elders and it says to show hospitality, and actually I shouldn't say just to the elders, it speaks to the church, and it says practice hospitality what? Without complaining. And it's right there that you know that it's a very, very genuine emphasis. Right? Because it does get to be a pain. You know, after having people in your home all the time, after a while, you you sort of start to say to your wife, you know, um, I could do with a little less of this and a little more of the lazy boy. Right? So this emphasis is constant. So when we say we're going to start meeting house to house, we're not manufacturing something. We're not following Rick Warren. Okay? What we're doing is... We're going back to the New Testament and saying, let's have more intimacy in this church and more people who know one another genuinely and not simply to greet on Sunday morning. Now, when we go to Acts 2, we see that both in these house groups and in their large gathered groups on the first day of the week, and they gathered the first day of the week because that honored the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the transition from the Old Testament Sabbath of Saturday to the first day of the week. In both these large group and small group meetings, they had certain devotions, certain things that they were continually devoting themselves to. And we read of them in verse 42, but I would like us to read verses 41 to 47. This is the Word of God, Acts 2, 41 to 47. And it is eternally true. <coughs> This is right after the day of Pentecost sermon, and it says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Remember, these souls weren't added to cosmic, mystical experiences in woods. They were added to the church. Not to the private prayer closet, but to the church. 3,000 added. The entry was baptism. All right. And they were what? Continually devoting themselves to one, the apostles' teaching, two, fellowship, three, the breaking of bread, and four, to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So it was those who had believed, who were a part of the church. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, what? And breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, why were they glad? Huh? Why were they glad? Were they glad because they enjoyed sharing their house with each other? Were they glad because they'd sold their property and they were poor? Were they glad because they were poor and somebody just sold their property and given them money? Now, why were they glad? They were glad because 
They had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they were glad. Their consciences were clean. They were glad, and it says, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to, again, not the mystical prayer closet, woods experience, but to their number day by day, those who were being saved. You can't have this emphasis on being added to and number without the church of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to be an individual Christian. Christ saved us to place us into his household. Now, this is God's word, and I want us to focus this week on the fourth of the four devotions. And that is, number one, verse 42, the apostles' teaching, and the way we do that now is by being devoted to the written record of that teaching, which is the New Testament, written by the apostles. Number two, to fellowship, and that's not a chummy, coffee-clatch kind of thing, you know. It's like grunt work, you know. It's tough. You sweat. Sometimes you bleed when you have fellowship because of love. That's, that's the nature of love. And then number three, to the breaking of bread, which is today our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, it's not limited to that. And as you see the transition from the apostles' teaching to the New Testament, and you see that God's truth becomes formalized in a book, so this breaking of bread has become formalized in a meal that we do where we break bread together. And then finally, to prayer. And there's no need to understand what that is. We all know what prayer is. Prayer is to be intimate with God. That's prayer. Now, let me ask, do you know that we have an incomparable God? That he is like no other? Do you know that? Our God is unique and he is matchless without peer because he is the only God who hears and answers prayer. There's no other God that hears and answers prayer. Let me ask you to turn to Psalm 115. And you'll see what is meant by that. This is a theme throughout Scripture. Now, before we get there, let me note to you, you cannot give yourself to the idol of diversity and inclusivity that reigns in this community and world and be a biblical Christian. All right? And Psalm 115 is a very clear statement of that. Because why? Well, look here. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols, and right here again, is where from the very beginning of the Christian church until today, we run into something which is entirely against the spirit of the age, the broad-minded inclusivity that just sort of weasels its way through our psyche and makes us think that 
the Dalai Lama is His Holiness. All right? I only use that as an illustration because it's the one that's most evident to us here in this community. But this is true of all the gods. Right here is where the unique Christian testimony to our culture comes in. Right up until now, everybody's happy for us to talk about our God being the great God. Everybody says, well, you know, every people group has their God, and they all say he's the only great God and that he's the greatest, and etc. But then we go to what it says here. It says their idols are what? Silver and gold, the work of man's hands. And then it gets really negative. These are negative statements. They have mouths, and it's speaking of all other gods, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Now, I hope you all will be honest with me and realize that that statement in its entirety is absolutely opposed to the spirit of our age. We're fine through verse 3, but we get through verses 4 to 8 and we realize that we have burned our bridges, right? And then we're reminded of why our God is different as we pick up with verse 9. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The house of Aaron, oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. He'll bless those who fear the Lord. You skip over to Psalm 127, keep your hand in Psalm 115. One twenty eight, the two domestic Psalms. And one twenty eight, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, this theme of fearing the Lord. If you feel that this theme does violence to true Christianity, Don't ever feel that fearing God and loving God are mutually opposed. They're only opposed when you've been a beaten dog. And then all fear is evil because you've never seen that discipline and love properly go together and that love without discipline isn't love, all right? So when you're told to fear God, don't think that's an Old Testament thing. It's all through the New Testament also. But watch. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways... When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. And then what does it do? It goes back and repeats that statement. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who what? Who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. See, peace and fear are perfectly bound together in true faith. And so then we go back to Psalm 115. And it says, verse 11, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Doesn't that seem like it's sort of mutually opposed? 
Those who fear the Lord trust in the Lord. And yet that's, that's the statement of a Christian. In the godly, fear and love embrace, an old preacher has said. In the godly, fear and love embrace. And that's what we see here. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. Funny thing how Scripture keeps talking about our children. Funny thing, people's hearts are bound up with their children. Funny thing, a God who loves a man will love his children. Funny thing. And so we have this promise, you and your children, may you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. We have an incomparable God. He's unlike any other because his eyes work, he sees. His ears work, he hears. His mouth works, he speaks. His hands work for his children. He's not blind and deaf and dumb. But he's constantly attuned to us. And he loves us. And he is prepared to be kind to us. All the other gods, the gods of the nations, are blind and deaf and dumb. Why? Because these gods are not. Isaiah 45:22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God. And again, that wouldn't go down poorly today at IU or in uh, a lot of the magazines and literature and television shows of our time. But it says this, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God. And then it says this, What? And there is no other. Only Jehovah is. Only He answers prayer. In Acts 4.12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name. So then, why is it that there are so many of us who claim to belong to Jesus who do not pray? Why is that? Why is it that so many of us lack a place of intimate and private communion with the true God? Now, if that's acknowledged that many of us are not prayers, that this is not a habit in our lives, might it be because we lack examples? <laughs> now, I'm not thinking primarily of examples in our own homes, although that is equally true. But I want to start first with examples from Scripture. And... As you would guess, Scripture is filled not just with promises that are given that prayer will be heard, but also with specific instances where prayers have been heard. Now, uh, many of us have a very tender spot in our heart, for instance, for the story of Hannah. And just listen to it. Don't, don't turn, but just listen. This was a woman who was tormented by her... Uh, competitor because she was not able to have a child. And it says in 1 Samuel 1.10, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and she did what? She prayed to the Lord. 
And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was, what, pouring out my soul to the Lord. And so here we see that it was natural for Hannah to go to God with her sadness about not having a son to present to her husband Elkanah. And did God hear her prayer? Did he answer? Think of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he was faced by King Sennacherib. Again, don't turn, but listen. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. And then he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread this letter out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the word Sennacherib is sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wooden stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I what? I have heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This same Hezekiah later, when he was on his deathbed, we read in Isaiah 38 that the prophet Isaiah came to him. It says in those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. I want to make a little note here. It's it's, uh, very much a fashion among students of Scripture to say that uh, the terrible things and, and what happened in Hezekiah's life from that point on was, was not entirely good, to put it gently. Um, and it's a habit for people to say that that was his punishment for not being content with the dispensation God had given him of dying at that time, that not being content with what God had decreed, that he went and he prayed and see what happens when you pray. Now, that's not how they say it, but that's the implication. If he had just simply taken death when it came, then he would have gone to the grave victorious, you know. And so the moral of the story is, 
don't pray. And I think this is one of the key reasons why I and many Reformed people have trouble praying. Now, on one hand, you could say that people that believe in God's sovereignty would be the people most inclined to pray because they would know that there is no force that can oppose God. But there's also the opposite. Namely, when you believe that God is sovereign, you think, well, and he's also perfectly wise. So why would I ever ask him to do something? He'll already do what's perfect anyhow. And so that's why you have all these battles between people who do and don't believe in the sovereignty of God and predestination because the people that don't believe in predestination say, well, you know, what's the point of any human agency if you believe in predestination? The people that do believe in predestination say, you know, who would be saved if it depended upon man? And they come at each other. Well, I don't want to address that issue except to say that it does have an impact on whether or not we pray. And if you're the kind of person who believes in the sovereignty of God and predestination, and therefore you think that Hezekiah shouldn't have asked for his life to be extended, and he got what he deserved, then I ask you to go back to Scripture and to see whether God is a God, <laughs> all right, who when we ask for bread, come on, finish it, he gives us a snake, or is that right? A stone, and when we ask for a fish, he gives us a snake. I mean, that's basically what we're saying about Hezekiah, isn't it? He asked him for bread, and God gave him a stone. He asked him for fish, and he gave him a snake. That's not God. God is fatherly kind. And God is not challenged by his ability to live within his own predestination and to show his fatherly kindness to us. He doesn't have a problem because he's omnipotent. In other words, he has another perfection that gets him out of that stupid human bind that we think we've created for him. He doesn't have a problem being absolutely sovereign and also absolutely tender-hearted and long-suffering. Absolutely fatherly. God doesn't have a problem with that. So don't ever solve God's problems by coming up with convoluted theological explanations. Just take Scripture for what it teaches you. Namely, today, he answers prayer. He answers prayer. And he doesn't answer it maliciously. In fact, the Bible says that when we ask for wisdom, he provides it, what? Without finding fault. And many of you who's grown up uh, with a human father, know what that's all about. You come and ask your father for something, and you know eventually you'll get it, but you'll know you'll pay before you get it. He will surely find a way to find fault. I was talking to a man yesterday on the telephone, and he was telling me how the Lord is teaching him about the joy of the Lord. And the man was confessing how much that had been absent in his life, and he was describing to me how he would even find himself sometimes in the car on the way home after work wondering whether his wife would have done something he asked her to do and literally, and some of you who are men will understand this, hoping that she hadn't done it because then he would be confirmed in what essentially is a love of sin. 
and a love of his own sin, a love of him being predisposed to judge his wife harshly. Now, you might have trouble thinking, how could a man be in love with judging his wife harshly? Well, I remember when I was into Pink Floyd, loving death. So, I don't think loving judging your wife harshly is a hard thing. And if you think it is a hard thing to understand, just think of how many women are in love with rebellion against their husbands. And you'll see that sin is an equal opportunity employer. Then think of uh, every... (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I would, I would be so sex-specific as to say every young boy's favorite womp. Um, no, not David and Goliath, but for me it was always Elijah. You know, womp! You know, womp! You know, the fire comes down, everything's gone. Now who's God is God. And, of course, I always loved the fact that uh, there's, there's an only slightly veiled taunt given to the idolaters, namely, what's happened to your gods? Are they out going to the bathroom? I mean, that's, that's what the text says, you know. The Bible shows us the taunt of Elijah. I mean, that's really politically incorrect. Can you imagine anybody saying something like that to So we read in 1 Corinthians 18 or 1 Kings 18:36 at the time of sacrifice this is after they'd gone through all their cutting themselves and wailing and doing everything they could to get their gods to have ears and to have a mouth and to have eyes and to have fire. All right. And at the time of sacrifice the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, "O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so these people, again, this theme. Is this theme ever in your prayers? Vindicate me at work, God, so that they know that you are the only true God. Give me a good grade, God, so that people know that you are the only true God. It's a a biblical prayer that God will show himself to be the only true God through you when you witness publicly to him. Now, people have to know what you are in order to pray that prayer. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know what? That you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their backs back again, their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And this is what I meant by the womp and burned up the sacrifice but that would be like nothing. Burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the fire in the trench. The water. (laughs) You can tell what's on my mind. Who needs to deal with a wimpy thing like water? And then what does it say? It says, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
And then in case we missed it the first time, it says, And the one true God poured fire from heaven onto the altar, and the altar itself was consumed along with the sacrifice. Now you can add and add and add and add and add to these stories. Think of Samson praying that God would give him strength just this one last time. And while all the Philistines were partying, how did God answer that prayer? He gave him bread and he gave him a fish. And the bread and the fish was the destruction of the Philistines. And that's our God. And that's just a tiny hint of the judgment seat. A tiny hint of the judgment seat. Jesus was a man of prayer. In Mark 1.35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5.16 says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6.12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Luke 21.36, he said, Watch and pray always so that you may be accounted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. And promises from our Lord. Matthew 18.19, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of him. Matthew 21.22, All things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer believing, you shall receive. And scripture also warns that a lack of prayer is an indication of godlessness. In Job 21.14, they say unto God, Leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? If you have ever seen the little uh, magazine guideposts, or if you've ever read the Reader's Digest, you'll know that these publications are filled with stories of someone who was at the very end of life. There was no hope for them. They had been skiing, an avalanche hit. They were buried deeply under the avalanche by the falling snow. And then what happened was the ski patrol came out to find them, and the ski patrol had been looking and looking, hadn't found them. And then they prayed to God. And right at the moment when the ski patrol was going to give up, all of a sudden, when the prayer is completed, they're found and they're rescued. War is an indication of God's mercy. During World War II, Father Cummings, an American Army chaplain, in one of his sermons said something that's become famous. There are no atheists in foxholes. Plato said, no one has ever died an atheist. And William Blake in the Divine Image says, all pray in their distress. But you know something? Those prayers are not an indication of a heart that's regenerate. Because if you follow the stories of many who God has been merciful to, you'll see that shortly after they were rescued, what happens? They turn back and give themselves to idolatry just as before their time of need. And so the fact that we call out to God in our time of need is not necessarily an indication that we're saved, that we do believe in Jesus Christ. An indication of whether we believe in Jesus Christ is whether during our life we worship Jesus Christ. In other words, whether during our lives we live by 
The just shall live by faith. Now, we all like to think that faith is a very nebulous thing, that you can't really grab it. It's sort of mystical again, you know. But, you know, faith isn't mystical. Faith shows itself by continually devoting yourselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In other words, if you are not devoted to the things the people of God are devoted to, then you are not a part of the people of God. And the people of God are people of faith. Do you understand this? I was speaking with somebody recently about a friend of ours who, having uh, committed grievous sin, seemed to lack the ability to have tears over that sin. And I was commenting that one of the things that produces in our lives the ability to see our sin as it really is, is that we do devote ourselves to the preaching of the apostles. In other words, when you come into a service and you sit under the preaching of the Word, it's a rare Sunday where we don't go understanding more our need for Jesus Christ to work in our lives. This morning, every one of you will leave here understanding more the need for the Holy Spirit to give you the gift of prayer. And so you grow in your understanding of your need. Well, that's what it is to become aware of your sin. And so if you find yourself committing grievous sin... And not having tears, having a hard heart, it's probably because you haven't submitted to the plow and the cultivator. I hope some of you have been around a farm. The hard scrabble dirt, all right? In the fall and the winter time, what happens? The farmer gets out the tractor and then pulls the plow. And the plow nice through the soil, first flipping it up and then breaking it up. And then right before it's planted... They go over with a cultivator and it breaks it down even more. And then it's ready for the seed because the prep work has been done. Prayer. All pray in their distress, but it's not necessarily an indication that someone is saved. Yes, there are no atheists in foxholes, but it's not an indication that they believe and that they have faith. But it is this being constant in prayer that is an indication of this. Now, as we read Scripture, we'll find that there are many objections we can come up with as to why we don't pray. And I'm going to mention just a couple of them. First of all, some object saying, how can the prayers of one insignificant creature influence our mighty creator? And all I would say to that is, that's a cop-out. Scripture is filled with accounts, and you yourself, among your own loved ones probably, have seen many cases where prayer has been answered. Just in the last week and a half, uh, without being able to be specific, I want to tell you, Uh, we as a church have been wonderfully blessed by God. He's shown himself strong in our behalf in a a few things. I mean, really major things. Um, God hears prayer. He promises he hears it. And so don't cop some posture as being super pious so that, you know, you say, well, you know, 
God's wise, powerful. He doesn't need me to pray to do what's right. He'll do it naturally. God is not pleased by that. God is pleased by us showing our faith by praying. Others pray because they say they don't have time for it, and that's just pathetic. I mean, that's not even worth responding to. It's so disgusting. (laughs) Right? You all know. Samuel Johnson said, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. Okay? So if you want to know where to find the time, come to me. I'll show it for you. It's there. Just take one-tenth. And for some of you, literally one one-hundredth of your television viewing time. Some of you, one one-hundredth of it. You know who you are. Get your priorities in order. And the way to do that is get your infections in order. How can somebody who loves television love God? Now, you might want me to modify that a little. It's too strident. Well, let me tell you, you can be happy that Chris's father isn't here speaking about television because he's intensely more intense than I am on that. Objection third, you might feel that you're too sinful and too unworthy for God to hear you. But then the question is, do you believe the promises of Scripture? 1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not us. So any man that comes before the Lord and says, Oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this wicked man over here. His prayers, the Bible says, will not be heard. So if you think that you're good enough to come to the Lord's table, good enough to pray, your prayers aren't being heard. Okay? You understand? If any man says he doesn't have sin, he's a liar. The truth isn't in him. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I just ask you, again, do you have faith? Our faith is that the blood of Christ washes us and that we approach God boldly coming to the throne of grace because of the blood of Christ, not because of ourselves. So if you think your sin is too awful for you to pray and have God hear you, what I would say is you have a very twisted form of pride. You think your sin is beyond the blood of Christ. Now let me ask you, God the Son, how precious is his blood to his Father? Huh? How precious is his blood to his father? And so what sin is it that invalidates that blood and makes the father just sort of go, well, really, you know, uh, that's beyond the pale. I mean, it's ludicrous. The real issue is you do not want to take that wicked sin before a holy God and be shown for what you really are. And so you just stay away. You know, because if you came, you would have to be completely humbled. And it's just pride. I know it doesn't seem like it, but it is. Objection four, maybe you feel ignorant of how to pray and you're afraid you won't have the right words to say. And I'll simply read Romans 8.26. It says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what or how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And this is why I'm not a cessationist. I believe that God often gives people the ability to pray in a spiritual prayer language that they do not understand what it is. 
And as they pray that language, the Spirit intercedes for them in ways that the human mind can't understand. Finally, maybe you think prayer should come easily to you, and I say to you, what thing that's worth anything has ever come easily? Some of you who are married and now have 10 or 20 years under your belt, has it been easy? Has it been a lark? You know that if you hear somebody else who's married say it's been easy and a lark, you despise them. Not because you're jealous, because you know they're a liar. Marriage is tough. How about giving birth? Huh? That's a lark, right? Giving birth is so easy that women are saved through childbearing. <laughs> Does that sound like something that's easy and a lark? I remember my wife saying after our first, and after, for our first, we took it, we saw every movie, read every book, went through every class, did absolutely everything, right? And when it was all over, my wife, who's one tough cookie, she said to me, nothing we read or studied prepared me at all for that. <laughs> okay, so prayer, it's discipline, it's work. Football's work, soccer's work. The violas work, pianos work, but anything truly spiritual just comes without work, right? Isn't that stupid? And that's what we think. We think that the more spiritual it is, the more it's clopped on us from heaven with no effort. I want to end with another text in Luke 11, if you'd turn there with me. And don't worry, this isn't a kiss and a promise. I really will end. Look at Luke 11, please. Beginning with verse 5. This should be such a sweet encouragement to us because this is spoken by our Lord, the one who died for us. And this is what he said to us. And he's the son and he has the father's love. All right. And he says this. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you will give us love. Love of God.